Hello, everybody, and welcome to Podversations, the new lecture podcast format powered by the University of East London, where two academics discuss the latest trends in communication and media transformations. My name is Valentina Signorelli. I'm the course leader for the BA Media and Communication and a Transmedia Director and Producer. Today, this episode will focus on communicating Brexit after Brexit, and please let me introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Dimitri Scarlato, area leader in master's master's programs in composition for the screen at the Royal College of Music in London. Welcome, Dimitri. Thank you for inviting me. Good afternoon, Valentina. Dimitri, this podcast has been running for a while now, and I normally I would ask my guests to introduce themselves and tell us why they became interested in the topic that we're going to discuss on the day. Um, in your case, you are here as possibly one of the most important EU rights activists in the UK. Yet, I have just mentioned that you're also an academic and a composer-conductor. So I have to slightly adjust this question, this first question today, I'm afraid. So um, can you please introduce yourself and most importantly explain how did you move from music to activism or better, how do you, your interests in both music and activism coexist? Okay, so I'm, my main activity obviously is being a musician, principally a composer, arranger, conductor and also lecturer. And I work in films, contemporary classic music. These are the, my main fields. And at the same time, I've always been interested in politics. And after the Brexit referendum, I started uh, being interested in uh, the, the citizens' rights. So in 2017, I started a group of was just of Italians um, trying to gather info, but also to um, push people to be more aware of the negotiation because it's important to safeguard our rights. And by doing these activities, I I've been noticed by the Three Million, which is probably the biggest grassroots organization that deals with citizens' rights. So I started uh, collaborating as an activist for the Three Million. Until then, I developed my skills and I became the EU advocacy lead, meaning that I was the, the main point of contact for uh, our relationships with the European Parliament, the European Commission. At the same time, I was also sitting at the Home Office, um, uses meeting, users groups meeting, where uh, you discuss with the Home Office the device of the EU Settlement Scheme, which is the scheme that uh, is, a, is used to help the European citizens to register. So as being something natural, I have to say that whilst my passion for activism in, uh, in Brexit and uh, EU citizens' rights grew, at the same time, uh, let's say that my professional activity had a, a kind of flatter curve until until then, everything kicked up, kicked off again. So now I'm trying to to balance the two activities. However, in the last few months since last term, let's say since last September, I really I stopped for a while. I paused my ac activism because my focus now is music because I got lots going on. But I still, you know, help EU citizens to register. I'm still following what's going on. Okay, thank you very much for this introduction. Um, we usually start the podcast with a little focus on, on numbers and, and terminology just to provide a bit of context. Um, so to, for today, our main key term is, of course, Brexit. And according to the Oxford Dictionary, um, Brexit is used to refer to the departure of the United Kingdom from the European Union. And the origin of the term actually goes back to 2012 as a blend of British or Britain and exit. Uh, probably on the pattern of Grexit, uh, which was coined earlier in the same year. 
for those unfamiliar with Brexit, it's worth reminding that uh, the Conservative government, led by the former UK Prime Minister David Cameron, ran a national referendum on June the 23rd, 2016, inviting the UK population to express their interests on whether or not uh, the country should remain a member of the European Union. Um, the outcome of the referendum, uh, so a total of over 46.5 uh, million voters, 51.9% voted to leave the European Union, whereas the 48.1% voted to, to remain. Uh, this is data are taken from uh, the BBC and the National Statistics. Um, on the other hand, in some other Overseas territories, for example, in Gibraltar, the situation was pretty different. <laughs> so, where, for example, in Gibraltar, as I mentioned, 95% of the people voted to remain in the EU. Um, going back to uh, to Great Britain in in the UK, England voted to leave by 53.4%, and the same for Wales that voted to leave, where 52.5% of the voting population opted to leave. Scotland, on the other hand, voted to remain by 62%, and Northern Ireland also voted to remain with 55.8%, voting against Brexit. According to the ONS, which is the Office for National Statistics in the UK, between June 2015 and June 2016, over 3 million EU citizens were living in the UK, with the Polish community being the largest, uh, with over 800,000 people and followed by the people from the Republic of Ireland, uh, over 390,000 people, and Germany, almost 230,000. At the same time, almost 800,000 British citizens were living in the EU on, January, on the 1st of January 2017, with Spain, France, and Germany hosting 69% of UK experts. So my question to you, Dimitri, after this little introduction is, how has your life been in the past four or five years, so in between, let's say, the Brexit referendum and, and, and today. And can you give us an example of your average day or, or week? How, how is the life of, of an activist? Uh, well, the life of an activist is that from the very early morning you follow the news, you become accustomed with, you know, people and newspapers like Politico and also you notice the difference of also the, the standard UK media, so like the Daily Mirror or the Sunday Times or The Guardian, how they present the news in a different way. And also you are aware that the numbers that you just quoted are official statistics, but they don't really reflect reality. And as an activist, we I collaborated with a sister organization, which is basically British in Europe. They were representing the British citizens in in Europe, and I can tell you that the numbers are much higher. Obviously, not as many Europeans in the UK, because even here the figures they don't reflect the reality of the European community, and we are far beyond the three millions and a half that the the statistics mention. And and, and then the average day, it's, you know, meetings that happen quite often between your organization and also the other organizations where you're doing lobbying together with British Europe. And then, you know, being up to date, writing tons of emails to, in my case, to MEP, trying to lobbying and, you know, present our cause and, you know, um, try to establish as many connections as possible that could help your cause because that's what uh, you know lobbying is is find allies in your cause 
So this was mostly my activity. So lots of reading, lots of, you know, being aware of all the news, lots of WhatsApp, <laughs> because nowadays the WhatsApp chats are a system to communicate effectively quite a fast way. So sometimes can be also overwhelming, especially when the home office was announcing something or Theresa May or the other prime minister or the Brexit minister were announcing something or the European Union was announcing something. So you always need to be alert and on the case and ready to react, preparing documents, uh, like the official, you know, papers, official responses. Okay, thank you. Um, if we move on to the communication strategy of Brexit, uh, back in 2016, for, for example, I'm sure that many of us remember at least two elements of the Leave campaign that became, uh, unfortunately, very popular. For example, the first example that I wanted to remind is the red bus with the slogan, we send the EU 350 million pounds a week. Let's fund our NHS instead, vote leave, take back control. And the equally famous or better infamous poster with a picture of a line of Syrian refugees and the caption breaking point, the EU has failed us all. We must break free from the EU and take back controls of our borders. Oftentimes used by um, leader of the Leave movement, Nigel Farage, in his communication strategy, <laughs> despite being himself married to a German woman and having a French surname or French sounding surname, for example. Um, I wanted to ask your opinion about these two examples to, you know, to discuss the, the Leave campaign back in 2016 or even other more recent examples, if you like. Um, so what can you tell us about this communication strategy? How did you perceive it, the, the impact that it had on, on, on the form of the Three Million Movement and, and so on? And, well, uh, when the Brexit referendum happened, uh, the Three Million Movement didn't, uh, wasn't there yet. It happened after the outcome of the referendum. And the Leave campaign at first uh, shocked me for, for the kind of messages that they used. But I have to admit that they, they were, uh, in terms of you know, communication, they were successful because they managed to turn around the, um, the forecast of the outcome of the referendum and they were presenting a positive message, even though we know it wasn't positive, it was full of lies, but they were presenting a positive message to, to their citizens. And on the other side, you add, let's say, the scaremongering from the, the Remain campaign. Oh, if we leave the EU, we're gonna lose this, it's gonna be that, it's not gonna be good for us, the economy will collapse. and. And history proved that the Leave campaign, uh, even though it, it didn't play fair, uh, eventually succeeded. So here there is a thin line in terms of communication. So whether you need to play fair to achieve your outcome or whether you go beyond and above the line, uh, regardless of what's your communication uh, system and uh, in order to try to win. And I think what happened also recently in the US elections and in recent elections and told us that uh, you know the power of social media and facebook at the time with together with cambridge analytica and there is an interesting documentary also about it uh, made us understanding how you can influence and you can send a biased message to the population so then on the other side uh, it's difficult for, for the people for the citizens to you know to navigate among these infos that often uh, are sending uh, not a realistic message. A study by Arneson and Zegel published in December 2018 in the European Journal of Political Economy, titled On the Causes of Brexit, found that three factors were to be monitored 
to understand the origins of xenophobia towards EU citizens in the UK. That often I'm quoting um, output education and the share of older people at the regional level. And in fact, regions where the GDP per capita is low, a high proportion of people has lower education, a high proportion is over the age of 65, and there is strong net immigration are more, li are more likely to be apprehensive of the European Union, be suspicious of immigrants and not want them as neighbours, and most importantly, to vote for Brexit. Um, Dimitri, what do you think about these findings and what was their impact on your work as an activist? So do you think that um, these findings uh, do reflect your, also your experience as, as an activist or do you think that these should be taken as with a pinch of salt? My work as activist, uh, let's say, has nothing to do with Brexit, with the outcome of the referendum. It's more about, you know, trying to find a way to safeguard citizens' rights. Obviously, when the press uh, keeps saying, uh, keeps shouting about the European citizen, this doesn't help, uh, to be honest. But if I don't want to make this assumption that people voting for Brexit are either uneducated, ignorant, or you know, are scared of or, or xenophobic, because that's not uh, all the majority of people voting for Brexit. And if we go uh, in, in in analysis more in depth, you will see that all the poorer parts of the country in, in England uh, voted for Brexit and clearly also was a, a vote against the system, the establishment, because we're coming from a, a long crisis the, um, with the previous government, the coalition government and then the new Tory government. And I remember clearly that, I mean, there was a documentary a month after the outcome of the referendum and there was a, an iconic uh, image, I think it was in Leicester, one of the first cities to announce that they wanted to leave. And there was this lady that was, you know, really ecstatic for the out, for, for the result. Then the interview there, the BBC, was, I think it was Laura Kostenberg, and then she said, you know, I don't really know what means living in Europe. I just want to vote to raise my voice and vote against the establishment, voting against London. So this is something that needs to be understood because otherwise the the let's say the the pro-europeans and the, the the more open people that you know want the want a country that is isolated will never understand the the reason and will never be able to change the outcome that happened in 2016. so i i just think that it's this is an issue that most progressives have across you know <laughs> europe and the world so always uh, assuming that people who voted against the preferred outcome or the right outcome from our point of view from our point of view are just you know ignorant and not educated or just xenophobic we must investigate and we must address the ask ourselves questions why did it happen why did this happen why we're not able to you know tell these people the the good reasons why you should have stayed in europe okay that's a, that's a very good point and in fact expanding on what we've just discussed and stressed by that same study by arnsong and zegel um, they claim that the fear of immigration does not seem to be fully justified in terms of the literature on the labor market effects of immigrants in the, in the UK. And I believe they refer to studies such as the physical, the, sorry, the fiscal impact of immigration on the UK, uh, which was published in June 2018 by Oxford Economics. And I'm now reading a few of the findings uh, of this study, which was... Um, again, analyzing the, the economic and the fiscal impact of, of EU migrants in, in the UK. 
So the, one of the first findings is that the average UK-based migrant from Europe contributed approximately to uh, 2,300 pounds more to UK public finances in 2016-2017 than the average UK adult. In comparison, each UK-born adult contributed 70 pounds less than the average, and each non-European migrant contributed over 800 pounds less than the average. Second interesting finding is uh, the average European migrant arriving in the UK in 2016 will contribute 78,000 pounds more than they take out in public services and benefits over their time spent in the UK, assuming a a balanced national budget. And the average non-European migrant will make a positive net contribution of £28,000 while living in the UK. By comparison, the average UK citizen's net lifetime contribution in this scenario is zero. And finally, taken together, this means that the migrants who arrived in 2016 will make a total net positive contribution of £26.9 billion to the UK's public finances over the entirety of their stay. The value of this to the UK's public finances is equivalent to putting approximately five pence on income taxes across all marginal rail bands in that year. And if I take a look at these findings comparing to, uh, in relation to what were you saying, so the origins of um, xenophobia is not actually potentially exclusively related to, to xenophobia, but to a protest uh, against the the establishment. Um, so my question to you is, based on your experience as an EU rights activist, can you recall any notable stories about EU people living in the UK that were at risk or, or made considerably vulnerable by Brexit, uh, not necessarily because of xenophobic reasons, but because of the consequences that Brexit had on their lives, even though they spent their lives or most of their lives in the UK and they were paying tax in the meantime. Exactly. Starting from the last point, there have been people that have been here for 30, 40 years. They don't understand why, for example, they need to do again a document that proves uh, their right to stay in the UK. And uh, I think, first of all, the elderly people, because I've been helping so many elderly citizens to register for set the status, often they're not finding the system because there is a glitch in the DWP and Department of Work and Pension, so their records are not found, so they need to prove, uh, you know, again, five years of residence, and often for women, uh, it's difficult. So this is an example, and they find it unacceptable, especially if they're in the 80s and the 90s, they find it very stressful. Plus, we we shouldn't underestimate the impact, the psychological impact on lots of citizens. There is a group called In Libo that was established after having a book that was written by Eleanor Rimici that basically collides lots of testimonies from EU citizens, how they felt afterwards. And we have a nurse, we have the woman who has been married for 30 years with two British citizens, because we need to understand the Europeans are not just, you know, in London, Manchester, the big cities, they are spread across. And they, also the level of immigration is different. And we are from very young citizens to very elderly people and they're becoming across the last 30 years. So, and surely Brexit had an impact because also suddenly uh, we, we started having also some cases of xenophobia towards especially Eastern European citizens. I remember clearly when I was discussing, I think, I think it was in September 2018, 
uh, another immigration report that basically established that the, the new citizens were contributing more to the NHS than the British because let's be honest lots of the immigration are young and healthy European citizens they want to you know uh, live and work in the UK because it's you know it's vibrant there are lots of opportunities so they, they don't uh, they're not uh, putting pressure on the NHS because they don't need most of them the resources from the NHS being still in their young age. And I remember when discussing with this, I was talking to a radio presenter for, for a show, I think it was talk radio, and then he said, oh, but we like you, you know, the Italians, the French, the Germans, the Eastern European that we don't like. And then try to explain to them that it's not their fault if they're, going, they're working at a very low wage. The fault is never of the worker. The, the fault is of the employer that decides to hire citizens at the lower wage because it wants to make profit. So these are all kind of things that, I mean, um, everything is always much more complicated than we think and we always the issue in communication that we need to stop at the surface to send a message across but then it's up to us to you know dig beyond the surface and try to understand all the different levels and layers of, of knowledge necessary to you know to take decision and to to act as you mentioned before all these you know statistics that are important to know okay and i'm, I'm asking another question in relation to what uh, you've just said is there any or do you recall one specific story or one specific case that touched you more than others and why I've, I've been reading so, 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 so many stories, um, but I think something that close to me is uh, the, the many people who have left the country. For example, my uh, former colleague, actually she's the one that was the lead advocacy for the 3 million, the, uh, probably she's been living and working here for 20, 25 years, she raised her children here, and eventually she just decided to leave because she didn't like the atmosphere anymore. She built her life here, and. But, you know, uh, in her mid-40s or late-40s, I remember, together with her husband and three children, she decided to cut ties with the UK because it wasn't her home any, anymore, because everything had changed. Uh, this made me think, because, you know, uh, I, I had, like her, so many cases of citizens that, although they lived here for such a long time, after what happened, not because of the outcome of the referendum, but for everything, you know, there has been built upon that this outcome and made her feel not welcome here anymore okay thank you for for that um we often focus on digital activism or activism in general in many of our classes at uel um in your case i wanted to invite you because um in the past few weeks at uel we've been talking about successful examples of digital activism whereas some people might think that when it comes about brexit Um, and especially those who are campaigning for EU citizens' rights, it looks like a sad story or a story without a happy ending. Um, but my question to you <laughs> is, what kind of victories did your movement make and what are you most proud of or any particular, even small battle that it was then achieved uh, that it's currently helping both Europeans and UK citizens To, a, to an extent. And, well, for example, one big win was when the Theresa May announced that she was scrapping the fees for settled status because originally you had to pay, I think it was £65 or £75 to the application. And then Theresa May announced in the House of Parliament that she would have, you know, scrapped this fee, listening to grassroots groups such as the 3 million. And so the, this was a really a big win because we're always been campaigning against the, having the fee. 
or also something that has, has been really good achievement is when we we managed to include in the in the withdrawal agreement which is the agreement signed by the uk and the european union about citizens rights we managed to include the family union rights meaning that every european citizen can bring a cabin with some family members because obviously from from as in, as if as if we are now and uh, all the european citizens now they are you know uh, immigrants so they therefore they need to apply to you know the new immigration rules to enter the uk but if you are related to a european citizen who lived here and has all the eu settlement scheme then we they're able to reunite with this member of the family without going through this really uh, new immigration rules that surely uh, will make the life of, of future migrants more complicated compared to what it was before especially for us eu citizens i think these are i mean two biggest uh, achievements Plus, I mean, many others. I mean, speaking about digital activism, I have to say that our Twitter account has been really, you know, grew really considerably over the years. And, and often we have the home office <laughs> arguing with us, uh, not directly, but indirectly. So uh, this means that probably we've become a, a, a Twitter account quite recognized. And how was your, uh, the 3 million movement received in Brussels? Because you... You were at, um, traveling to Brussels um, often, I would say, <laughs> in the past few years. Yeah. So how well, was the situation uh, there? The situation was very welcoming, very open. Uh, from the very beginning, it's been much more easier to communicate with uh, European institutions rather than communicate with the British government. And, and also, the, the, they consider us, after a while, like the... Uh, the main let's say stakeholder meaning so they really trusted our papers our documents and our reports and when the home office was invited in brussels to present the youth settlement scheme the the brexit steering group which was the the, the commission that dealt with brexit the european parliament invited one organization the familiar to speak about this EU settlement scheme and i was the person that went to discuss this so i have to say that they really valued our inputs and they still value Thank you. I would like to focus for a moment on um, the the academic environment because both you and I um, work <laughs> for UK um, higher education institutions. Uh, what I have been personally witnessing in the past, you know, four or five years as a teacher, uh, which also coincides with my own <laughs> professional experience as a lecturer. Uh, there were moments, back in, especially back in 2017, where I'd step into a class and receive comments from my students saying things like, uh, we voted out, why are you still here? Which is actually a true story <laughs> uh, that was particularly shocking for me, um, having to you know, teach in front of a class uh, with these kind of comments and having none of my students who could just say, you know, uh, I don't think the same thing that this other classmate has just said. Um, so now most of the BA students I'm teaching in early 2021 are living the consequences of the 2016 vote as they were underage um, back in 2016 and couldn't vote compared to the ones that um, I was mentioning in 2017, they were voting. But now after a few years have passed, our current students, especially at the BA level, they're just leaving the consequences of Brexit and, and they couldn't vote. So if I'm not wrong, you came to, to the UK over 15 years ago and studied for your PhD here. Um, so my question to you is, regardless of the personal sentiment on Brexit, 
what main differences will Brexit or is already Brexit playing on UK students compared to, let's say, EU students, uh, despite the December 2020 agreement signed by Boris Johnson last year? So what is going to happen <laughs> in, uh, to, the, to the higher education sector? Well, I think the education sector in the UK is going to struggle. It's going to be challenging because uh, you will lose lots of European citizens because they won't come uh, to pay the same fees as international students simply because they can afford it. Uh, lots of students uh, that were coming from Europe also were able to, first of all, ask for a loan, student loan, and they were able to afford the fees as the UK, citizen, the UK students. So this will change. Now, this year, we haven't seen yet the impact, but I think in the next couple of years, we'll see massively the impact of the loss of US citizens. And I'm, I'm a privileged because I work in an institution that it's, you know, worldly recognized and attracts lots of students. But there are so many universities in the UK that employs lots of, you know, uh, British, Europeans, international staff that I think they will suffer uh, and this will have a repercussion on their job. So this is something that uh, perhaps the British government should have thought about it. And in terms of the UK students, they're going to lose the, the opportunity of studying abroad because they're not part of the Erasmus. Now there is this new um, new project that the UK wants to, to put into place. Actually, it's part of the last agreement that has been signed in December 2020. So, but... We shall see, but for the time being, I think that the, the British citizens and the British students have been affected the most from from Brexit. And also I think that, I mean, there's nothing wrong in having more Asian students in the UK because I think this this is what is going to happen. But what I, I, I'm worried about is that we lose the, the internationality that the UK always had because what was beautiful and what is beautiful about uh, studying in the UK is that uh, you have so many international students from all over the world and I think and I'm, I'm worried that you will lose this, you know, this heterogeneity. Thanks. I've got a couple of final questions. Um, the first one is recommendations. So having discussed Brexit and activism today, so what kind of practical recommendations would you give to university students and especially uh, to media students or film students that are the future <laughs> media experts and film experts? So what kind of pra practical recommendations would you give them when dealing with political information on mainstream media? So let's say they had to work on a campaign involving, you know, Brexit language or Brexit facts what kind of practical recommendations would you give them? And especially for the younger one who didn't vote because they were too young to vote. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, first of all, they need to be able to distinguish their sources. So they need to find sources that are accurate so they can verify that the facts that are written in these sources uh, are true because that's the, the, I think this is the, the first and foremost task for everyone working in media communication. So knowing the fights right because there are... Uh, with this abundance of information, often even people that have you know uh, good habits and good uh, good willing may incur uh, in into wrong wrong news, and then they might share this news incorrectly. So this is the first thing. And then in terms of activism, you need to build your profile. 
so building your profile according to what you're doing, whether you want to campaign for environment or want to campaign for Brexit or for, you know, civil rights, you need to find what's the right organization for you. There are so many organizations that are around and or charity and then you need to be aware that it's a very demanding and challenging job because activism means you know you're a volunteer you're giving lots of your time can be overwhelming lots of the time so you need to be you know, <laughs> make sure that you're physically and mentally sane and able to find a space for yourself to detach from what's uh, from the from your activism otherwise you, you won't live because you will be 24 7 always on the same case over and over and over and sometimes this can be too much because you lose track of, of, of life that's the problem of you know activism that you're so passionate and then you forget everything else okay thank you and super final question is um if some of the students or some of the listeners would like to get involved with the forum of the three million how can they keep in touch with you with the movement. So I think that recently we have developed uh, lots of tools to be in touch with us. So first of all, you can uh, ask to become a member of the Forum for the Free Million on our Facebook group, or you can go on our website and you can find all the links to you know take part of one of our campaigns or fill the volunteer form, and then you'll be contacting one of the members of the Free Million to, you know, having a chat with you and see how you want to be involved. We're also trying to do more activist events. They are advertising, you know, Facebook and Twitter. The reality is that despite the big work that we do, it's still a very small organization that is slowly growing, but and, and often we don't have enough human resources to <laughs> reply and answer to everyone. For example, in the forum on Facebook, we receive tons of questions every day, just to give you an example. So be patient. If yeah, you, that, we, that's you a very good uh, point. Okay, so um, I have a final question in relation to what were you just saying. So what kind of requests are you seeing right now, for example, via social media? Are they the same, you know, uh, requests for help that you were seeing four or five years ago? Or is it changing? Well, changing the shift. It's a lot on, you know, the pre-settled status, the continuity of residence. So what do you have to do in order to then convert your pre-settled status in settled status, which is your indefinite leave to remain? There is lots of worry about because also because of the pandemic, lots of people have been stra stranded abroad and there are lots of questions about, you know, UK citizenships and now questions about uh, the next elections that are in some cities of law in the UK for the mayor. So whether we can vote or we cannot vote. So these are the main, and then we're still campaigning for, you know, the physical document because what worries us is the US citizens are this digital document only that will create lots of issues, lots of issues. So we're campaigning and lots of people are also expressing their concern about the lack of a physical document. Okay. So do you also receive questions from UK nationals? Generally, there are questions that come from husbands. They ask for their wives or citizens. They want to show their empathy and support to to us. And they want to say that we, we want you here. We disagree with how the government treated you and the outcome of the referendum. Okay. Thank you, Dimitri, for agreeing uh, on, being us, on being with us today on this podcast. And all the best with your future projects and work. Thanks to you and good luck to you and your students.